Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinated people in the tech scene. This is episode 125, and today's guest is Amy Sperling, co-founder and CEO of Compt. By the time Amy started Comp, she was well-versed in the world of startups. As a COO or CFO for multiple venture-backed companies, where many had exited, she knew the playbook around raising funding, negotiating an acquisition, and running the operations of a startup. This experience all led her down the path to where she is today as a co-founder and CEO. The idea behind Comp came from a real-world problem that Amy was experiencing. Companies give a standard list of benefits, but not all employees are able to leverage them. So Compt is changing this with their platform that allows employers to develop and manage lifestyle spending accounts so employees can get the perks they want and need the most. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Amy's background as a Northern California native and how she ended up on the East Coast, a walk through her career and how Amy methodically prepared herself to run a company, all the details about Compt and the company's mission to empower employees to choose their own benefits, how you should think about the valuation of your company when raising funding and why you shouldn't always swing for the fences with the highest number, advice on how to negotiate the sale of your company, when a company should think about hiring a CFO, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that every Monday at 9.15 and 10 a.m., we send out two weekly digest emails? There is one for Boston and one for New York. It is your weekly email to stay connected to all the must-know information from the local tech scene. It includes information on companies, jobs, events, deals, and more. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email and look for the weekly tech buzz to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Amy. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me here. So uh, we have a lot to talk about. There's a lot that you've accomplished throughout your career and of course being a founder of your current company. So we're going to talk at length about that. But um, you know, one of the things I noticed just going through your, your history, there's a, uh, there's a really interesting trend mm-hmm. where a lot of the companies that you've been a part of had eventually gone on to some type of exit, mostly acquisition. So I was just curious if there was any common element that you noticed about those companies that led to that type of uh, event? Yeah. So one of the things like I would do diligence on any of the companies that I was joining much like an investor would, because I, I know the stats the same as everybody else. Nine out of 10 companies fails. That's not really something that CFOs typically want to be part of um, because, you know, we want to be a part of things that succeed. Uh, And so one of the things that I looked for in all these companies I joined was, not only just a really interesting product idea that I could see myself, like I, I could understand where in the market it would have a home, but also the way the company was building. For companies that I looked at that were building for an exit, like, hey, we think X company is going to buy us, that's a super risky endeavor. So what I liked seeing when I was doing my own diligence was, is this company building so that it can be a standalone company at some point uh, and therefore preserving its optionality? It could IPO at some point if it's doing that, or it could be acquired uh, depending on the, the particular path for the company. And so looking for that kind of a framework and desire within the management team uh, was one of the things that was really important to me because all of them had something that I thought was groundbreaking, really interesting, kind of revolutionary, but there's a lot of products out there that are. These were the ones where it was like, okay, we're actually going to build a business around this and make sure that it's not just a rip through cash kind of scenario because you back yourself into a corner. 
Well, that's interesting feedback. So you approached your job search or selecting the next thing you were going to do almost as if you were an external investor, the same due diligence that a VC yeah. would do. So that's, that's yeah. good feedback for people kind of there, you know, as they're evaluating options to kind of look at things through a different lens of not just the job and right. it's kind of like the bigger picture of what's going on like an investor would. Well, and it depends on what you want to get out of it too. Like if you're looking like, I don't think every person needs or should do that. If it's, I want to be someplace for the next year so I can get the next title or I need to gain this one skill. It doesn't matter if the company fails eventually, if you're getting what you ultimately need for your career. Yeah. For me, I mean, so CFOs get equity. Uh, that equity is not worth much of anything. And we certainly are taking salary cuts to join startups. So I wanted companies that I thought could, could pay a dividend. Uh, and so that's why I approached it a little bit differently. Got it. Well, let's go way back. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Always, I'm always fascinated Ooh. by that question. Yeah. My version or my brother's versions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm from Northern California, real Northern California. So this is a bone of contention with a lot of Northern Californians. So I'm from five and a half hours North of San Francisco. We consider that central California, not Northern. We're from true Northern California. Uh, uh, okay. So middle of nowhere, a place called Humboldt County. We grow 60% of the weed in the U.S. is from there. So very popular place to be from right now. <laughs> uh, kind of this new cannabis economy. Um, and so I grew up out there. My dad's family's from there. My mom's family's from kind of Northern California as well. Uh, and I ended up on the East Coast because I, my family, um, we were pretty poor growing up. I was going to end up paying for college myself. So it was who was going to give me the biggest scholarship. I ended up getting a whole lot of money to go to University of Rochester. They gave me an amazing scholarship. So I was like, all right, sight unseen. All I had was the view book. Internet wasn't a thing back then. So I showed up first day and was like, all right, this is where I'm going to be for four years and just kind of showed up. Visit. Nope. That's amazing. I had no money to visit. So I was like, all right, I'd never been on the East Coast. I had no idea what to expect. I was used to Berkeley as a concept for school. So kind of hippie kids, you know, whatever I got there. And it was like Manhattan kids and dockers and button downs. I was like, is this college or is everybody going to church? I'm very confused by this. So And you had never shot. really experienced the, a winter. I'd never lived in snow. I didn't own boots. I didn't own a coat. I had a winter hoodie. Like that was my winter wardrobe. I froze to death my first winter. It was awful. So... <laughs> Big adjustment, um, but made my way to the East Coast and followed my college roommate to Boston. And just, I mean, I found my home when I moved here. I was like, ah, things move faster. I like it. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit, a little bit more my speed. And you were a poli sci major. Why, why did you decide to, uh, to to graduate with that degree? The um, so I started out. I had an amazing science teacher in high school. Thought I wanted to go into some of the hard sciences. I realized when I got to college that a small high school in Northern California, not necessarily the best prep school when you compare it to like the private schools from Manhattan. Uh, and the sciences were not really going to be for me. So I just kind of took a look at everything that was available and said, what's interesting? And landed in poli sci because that's where there was a lot of analytics being done at the time. Business classes weren't even a thing that was talked about on campus. I, in retrospect, I probably would have done well there. But I liked the way they analyzed campaigns. They looked at, all right, if you do this type of a campaign, it moves your numbers in this direction. So the analytics of it were what really attracted me to it, which is, you know, common theme throughout my career. So it kind of got me going on that path. And then after graduating, what were kind of the first jobs after undergrad? Oh, um, I was an English teacher in Italy for a while. Wow. Uh, so That's I started awesome. out there. Yeah. So I started out there 
uh, until you know you your visa runs out and then I moved back uh, I worked at, in marketing in an educational travel company in Boston I worked in kind of finance for Boston properties the big commercial real estate developer here and then ended up going to business school and then from there landed kind of in tech and startup land which was amazing and perfect for me yeah, so was the was the MBA that kind of set the stage for okay, you know, I, I want to get into more of a the financial career path that led you to being a CFO, and uh, you know what what was that first job yeah. in tech? So it was it was really looking at I knew if I wanted to move up, I that I was going to need a graduate degree, so it was going to be an MBA. So I went and did that. Uh, coming out of it, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I was young when I got my MBA. I was twenty four. Uh, so figuring out what my career was going to look like. And I knew there were pieces of things that were interesting to me. I thought it was going to be marketing, honestly. I uh, realized it, it was because like marketing analytics wasn't really a thing at the time and was just starting to take off. So that's what kind of was drawing me in. Uh, but I ended up getting a job where I was doing marketing and finance in an early stage kind of, it was an investment management company. Uh, where one of the first companies I worked on was a company called Anakwa that is still here in Boston when I was working on them. So it was one of the five companies I was working on through the investment company. Uh, it was three guys in the UK, broken but really cool piece of technology that was being spun out of British American Tobacco and Ford. They had partnered to build the concept because it's all IP management, kind of cool stuff. Um, it was my job to bring it from being UK based to being US based. We started building out a team. I was running finance for them as part of the portfolio management uh, and then kind of backfilled and myself uh, and they've done incredibly well. They were inquired by Insight Venture Partners uh, and it's probably five years ago now, mm -hmm. um, but super cool company. So that got me going. I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. One, I really like finance. Two, I really don't want to be spread across five companies. I want to be able to go in and build and really help a single company at a time. And so that's where I spent, I think, four years at that company and then made the switch over to working in-house for Maven Networks. Uh, right as they were getting ready for their roadshow, thinking about acquisition, I was uh, sitting second chair to the CFO in that company to help them figure out, all right, what's this look like? What's the roadshow look like? How do we get this thing ready for acquisition, going through the diligence and going through that? And once you have Yahoo acquire one of your companies, and it was a general catalyst company, I mean, you're, you're in the VC pipe from there on. Like, right. you like, like, just made it onto the preferred <laughs> provider list, and you just kind of go company after company after that. Because Maven was an online video platform, like a, like yeah. a Brightcove competitor. It was, it was actually exactly a Brightcove competitor. Like the founder of Brightcove originally was a part of Maven. Uh, they didn't have a non-compete. They ended up splitting ways. Brightcove got built going one direction, raised a ton of money, ended up IPOing. Maven went the other direction, raised a lot less money, exited for a smaller amount, but had a huge return for investors because they sold earlier. Um, but yeah, video on demand when that was the new cutting edge thing. Mm -hmm. And then from there, uh, Exos, which uh, you spent yeah. you know, a good six years there and you, you did yeah. a lot. Like there was a lot of parts there was a of lot. company operating. Yeah, that was my big kind of scaling opportunity. So I went in there uh, because I loved what we were doing. So it was a health tech company that was really trying to help improve population health within companies. Uh, they were Boston-based when I joined them. Polaris had just invested in them. We had an office in Norwell. Within a year, they went right back to their home base in Phoenix. So I got to 
commute to Phoenix, Arizona for five of my six years with them. Oh, wow. I loved <laughs> what we did so much. I was willing to do that. Um, but that was not my favorite part of it. Um, but we grew from 100 employees to 650 over those six years. We went into 12 countries while I was there. Uh, they've just had amazing, amazing growth. Uh, and they've just done, they've done incredibly well. Uh, you know, when we were, we trained a bunch of the folks for the Olympics uh, in London, I think, I think it was the London Olympics. We trained so many Chinese athletes. If we were our own country, we would have ranked fifth for medal count. That's how many folks we were training. So just like this amazing training platform that is now on pretty much every Google campus uh, in most of the Intel campuses, uh, you know, Tesla, like they're just doing all this corporate wellness. That's pretty amazing. That's awesome. And then on to uh, Backupify and, and Rob May, who's a great entrepreneur in Boston. Yeah, I went in there to, to help him figure out kind of what to do with the company. So I was there very, very short time period. It was knowing that was going to be a short time period, kind of go in, get the thing ready to sell. Uh, was kind of the game plan with that because, you know, it was like, all right, we've got some cash to get through this. What are we going to do in the next six weeks? So we had a term sheet within six weeks, getting the company set up for diligence going through diligence, getting that over the finish line. So that was a, a quick kind of flip scenario. Uh, General Catalyst was also on the board of that company, uh, which is part of the, so that'd be my second General Catalyst company. So really helping them figure out, all right, where do we put this? Really cool technology, an amazing, like you couldn't find a better home for it than being part of Datto when you've got the two technologies that are so complementary. So it ended up being like a fantastic exit for everyone, um, which was great. So you come into a company like that where there's already a product, there's a market, revenue, you have a founder that has a vision. Like, like what, what role do you play? Because you're kind of coming in from the outside and having a different lens and there's some objectives sure. that, that the investors, that the founder has in place. So, so what do you do at that point? So with Rob in particular, like he was, he was on the same page as the investors. Like it was time, like he, I think he put seven years into the company at that point. Uh, it was time for there to be a change and he was ready for that and excited for it. And there was an opportunity on the table. So it made sense. Like you're, you're at that decision point. Do we go raise more money or do we potentially have an exit here? And the exit made a lot of sense for him, for the investors, for the company. So it was really kind of helping guide that process because uh, Rob had never been through it before right so it's figuring out all right what diligence do you supply how do you clean everything up and have it ready for diligence in a very very short time period uh, and then going through deal docs all of that stuff ends up being on the CFO's plate uh, and so just kind of making sure and helping guide the company through that and making sure it gets over the finish line because I, I mean quite frankly that's not much of a CFO or a CEO's job they'll get they got to get the product and the vision to where it is and make sure that we're building something really awesome but the deal structure typically falls on a CFO a lot of times. Got it. Okay. And then from after back up a five, there was uh, obviously other companies after that. Yep. So, yep. so what was next? So, yeah. So I think uh, after that one, I think it was Jana actually. Uh, so spent some time there, went in there knowing that I, like I said, on my way in, I was like, look, last CFO gig this is it. I'm done. Like I'm going to start moving towards kind of COO. Like I want I know I want to start my own thing at some point. So I need to start and I move in that direction. I went in there to help raise the series C, uh, the big round with Verizon, help start figuring out, all right, how are we going to set this thing up to start scaling? I loved the mission of the company trying to, you know, bring more um, access yeah, more to information. 
Yeah, especially for emerging markets. Like yeah. that is, instead of deciding, hey, this is what people should have access to and this is the information they have, it's giving them the ability to decide for themselves. And that is really powerful. And that's something that all of us were on board for. So it's getting, uh, getting that deal over the finish line, helping structure kind of how things were going to go forward and then, you know, letting the company ultimately take it from there um at that point um and then coming out of that i went over uh to bedrock again that was intended kind of like the backup of my situation where it was like look we just need some help <laughs> getting this the getting this round finished let's go and do this can you help the the ceo that just put a ceo in place um to kind of work with the founders uh, and he hadn't raised funding before so didn't know the process had never met any VCs, so kind of going in helping them get that around kind of over the finish line so that they could have the they, they ended up putting another founder in place uh, who ultimately take up through exit this this earlier this year so kind of helping helping the company there so you oh you said before like you started to move into more uh, COO type of role so that mm -hmm. you can eventually start your own company so right. when did that frame of mind start to happen that, you know what, like, this is great, but I want to actually start my own company someday. Like, when did you start thinking of that? I, it was a couple of things. So I thought I was going to be happy kind of sitting in that second chair CFO seat for a long time. I like that job. I love transactions. I think they're a lot of fun, but I started seeing uh, I, all my CEOs were first time founders and I started, you know, you do your fourth, your fifth one, you're seeing the same pattern of behavior and you're like, okay, I've, I'm literally doing rinse and repeat on this job. I was getting kind of bored. And at the same time, I realized that the, the reason I was okay sitting second chair was that a lot of these companies had technology I would never come up with. I would never come up with the backup. If I like thinking of like a Gmail backup, that's, that's not the way my brain works. Uh, where I was seeing issues was in kind of finance and HR, and that's what I'm actually really passionate about. I'm not an accountant by training. Like, I don't go the accounting direction. I'm much more of a finance person, and so, and a, like a people ops person. So I started seeing this shift in the industry at the same time I was kind of getting kind of done with the, the standard CFO gig uh, and started shifting that direction. I was like, okay, like, yeah, if, you know, all these first-time founders are doing it, and it's, it's really, you know, I've done this now five, six times. I think it's time to go do my own thing. Yeah. So it's time to do something on my own. Yep, exactly. Well, that leads us to where you are today. So yeah. Comps, let's talk about your current company and yeah. kind of what was the idea generation of coming down the path of, okay, this is what we're going to, uh, to build. Yeah. So I started seeing this, this trend happening in the market. It was probably five or six years ago where so when I started my career, it was salary negotiation. That's how you get the best talent. You offer the best salary. There isn't a lot of salary transparency. So folks don't necessarily know what people are making. That's very taboo to ask. That's changed. Like that's not a taboo question anymore. People talk about what they make because you can Google it, right? So you, you know, walking in the door as a candidate, what range they should be offering you for any given job, any given stage of company. Uh, and if they don't offer you that, you go up, you go up the street and you get the job there because there's just, there's not enough skilled labor to go around. So that's when companies started getting into perks. Uh, all my companies did too. I think at, uh, so we had beer taps at Jana. Uh, we've done espresso machines at Backupify, like it's the usual kind of startup fair, right? And it was cool and different to begin with, but then everybody was doing it. And so then it's like, okay, what's next? How are we going to differentiate? And it just becomes this escalation where the finance side of me is like, okay, hang on. Our budgets can't go up 20% year over year. 
the, our margins aren't going up that much. So we need to figure out another way to tackle this because we still want the best talent. We still want to retain folks, but just escalation of cost isn't cutting it. And I also saw this, this trend where the more we brought in to try and create some personalization for employees, the more we created a lot of noise for the employees where it's just like this overwhelming list of the thousands of things you could have access to and people would check out and they weren't using it. If they're not using the benefits, they're not going to be retained for those benefits. So I get the constant question from employees be like, okay, that benefits great, but I don't want that. Why can't I have something else? And it's like, because, because I'm not on an a la carte menu, like I, I get the need, but I, that's just not the way this works. And I sat there and kind of thought about it. I'm like, they're not wrong. Like if it is their compensation, why can't they have something that matters to them? And so I started thinking about it. I assumed somebody would build this. Like I literally Googled for this product for about three years, assuming it would show up through some other provider, whether it was an Expensify or a Concur kind of concept or whether it came through one of the payroll providers and nobody built it. And I, it, it, a lot of it's because nobody was sitting across finance and HR and was an employee. You have, it's a pretty unique perspective to understand the taxes, the budgeting, the employee kind of retention numbers, like all of these things together are really what informed how and why we built Compt. Uh, because ultimately, I think employees should have complete choice and control over their compensation. It makes complete sense to me. Uh, I want something different than you want in all likelihood. And you probably want something different this month than you're going to want next month that should be allowed. And so building a system that allows for that is something that I think is really powerful within a company and allows us to recruit a much broader base of talent. So how does it work? Like if, if uh, a company is like, oh yeah, I, I'm a believer in this, but how, yeah. how does it actually work as far as, you know, offering, you know, selecting the benefits that the company wants to offer and then rolling it out to employees and then almost reconciling that as far as the payment of yep. the providers. And then you had to build this out on the front end of right. getting, you know, organizations and companies to sign up to provide the benefit through your company. So yes and no. So everything out there right now is a marketplace. Like those are your options. If you're in finance, that's not fun. That's not scalable as a business model, in my opinion. Uh, and it doesn't ultimately solve for that choice and personalization for employees. So we didn't build a marketplace. So that's one of the key differentiators in what we've built here. The way it works is that a company sets a budget per employee per time period. So it can be monthly, quarterly, semi-annual, annual kind of ties to finance timing of things. They pick very broadly defined categories. So things like pets, health and wellness, continuous learning. Uh, we have student loan forgiveness on the platform, charitable giving, uh, so that you can really kind of bring your employees together, still have the personalization, but really bring them together around the culture you're trying to build because that is how companies should really differentiate. And then you let employees do what they would like. So it's an expense reimbursement model. It goes through payroll. So finance doesn't have to touch this anymore. It handles all the taxes. We do all those calculations for you uh, on what's taxable, what's not. And employees can spend. So say it's family, for instance. Uh, for somebody, it could be a babysitter for a night. For somebody else, maybe it's flowers being sent to their aunt. It could be pet insurance because you're a pet parent. It's really up to you as an employee to say, here's who's in my family. Here's what's important to me. And the company be like, that's fantastic. Go nuts. We'll support you because that's your concept of family. Instead of prescribing for the employee, here's who we define as your family. That's just a very antiquated, very parental notion of an employee-employer relationship that is very much changing. The new school of people ops folks are phenomenal. Like I absolutely love working with them. It's a totally different field from like 
the little like HR police officer from the eighties that was just the compliance officer, totally different concept. Like their whole goal is to drive engagement and employee retention and employee advancement. And so they're looking at it from a totally different lens and that is phenomenal to see. It's, it's so smart just because, uh, you know, my background recruiting, you know, you would get to the point where the company is, you know, making an offer and the candidate's considering the offer and they might say, well, you know, is some of these things negotiable and outside of the salary and bonus, it was like right. the benefits would be like, well, uh, I'm on my wife's health insurance. So right. I don't need that, but that's an expense that the company would incur. So right. can I get that added to my base salary? Where in this right. concept, it's like, here's your pool. You select how you want to use it. Exactly. It, it, this is outside of health insurance. What we are seeing, like I had that co very conversation with so many employees that were like, okay, but why are you spending 10 grand extra a year on that employee versus me? Why, why can't I get that benefit? What makes them more special? Like that doesn't make any sense. Or you look at paying for a family plan versus an individual employee plan. They're both employees to you. Like why would you treat one differently from the other? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean you penalize the family, but it means that maybe that individual employee gets something additional or something different. We see a huge movement in the remote employee space too. This is where so many people are moving to remote employment. They don't want to commute into these major cities and you can get amazing talent all over the place. But if all of your benefits are at your headquarters, you're sitting there going, okay, that's great. Like I get to listen to you eat on yet another lunch and learn. Fantastic. Like this is not like, why don't I get a consistent base of benefits? And so this is where a lot of companies are kind of reaching in and saying, you know what? You're right. You should get a consistent benefits. I'm not going to select a chef for your house. Maybe here's how you go manage your benefits yourself where you can still participate in kind of our overall compensation. Wow. Like you said, like when you, when you kind of just like, let, let it rest as far as what you actually do. Um, right. And you know, you're Googling this. They're like this, someone's going to do this eventually and right. no one has. It's just, it is right. one of those no brainer like business. Exactly. Where it's like, I get asked a lot. I'm like, how does this not already exist? I'm like, I hear you. I totally agree. It should already exist. I, I like, I basically built the tool that I needed to be able to scale another company. Like I couldn't build another team without something like this because you're just creating this weird dynamic with employees where like, why am I suddenly mom? Like I have zero, like we're all adults here. Like let employees do what matters to them instead of prescribing for them what you think they should have in their career. That makes zero sense to me. And so seeing that dynamic change within companies, I think is super exciting and kind of takes us into this next phase of the way companies and employees interact together. Now, are you, Coming out of the starting gates, are you building your business around a particular size of company that might, you know, be able to utilize your platform, or is it because any company, any size, right. could leverage this? But so That's how exactly do you? Right. Yeah. So how do you, you know, kind of <laughs> narrow down the funnel? Other than the world is yeah. our oyster, you're kind of like having yeah. a focus. Well, and the world was our oyster out of the gate, right? So we started out testing with those smaller companies because like if you start, like there's a lot of things you need to have in place to, to work with large enterprises. So we knew we needed to test a lot of things out. What I realized pretty quickly was in, in order for an SMB model to work, um, first, every investor was like, you're an idiot. Don't build for the SMB. You're going to hate yourself in three months. And I was like, no, it's genius. I've got it. No, I was an idiot. Uh, and so what we realized was that, yes, there's a lot of companies. Yes, this is applicable. But if you're dealing with a founder and an office manager, 
They don't understand budgets. They don't understand taxes. They're just like, why can't I just like give my employees my credit card? I'm like, yeah, that doesn't like, okay, taxes. Like, how are you, how are you tracking that? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, all right, no, like, I don't want to be the CFO for hire for all these little companies. For that model to work, you have to have a touchless product, which our product can be used that way, but no one is going to implement a product for their employees' compensation without talking to someone. Like, you'd be crazy to do that because what if you mess it up? Like, you cannot mess up your employees' compensation. So I was like, all right, yeah, some, the system stayed the same, the exact same software, but we started shifting up market where there is HR in place, there is finance in place. Uh, and we start seeing kind of growing scaling companies. So the ones that we're focused on right now are the kind of the 100 to 500 person range. So just starting to tip over into major growth mode. Uh, we have a lot of interest from the 1000 to 5000 person companies uh, and we're building that direction. There's, there's a lot of compliance stuff you need to have in place. Uh, as we start thinking internationally, you need to put GDPR in place. So we're kind of building that direction, but it takes time. Yeah, and what is your current, you know, like, the current size of your companies, you know, like any other details that you can share, just perspective of, of where Comp is today. Yeah, so so we're working with, so we started in January of 18. Uh, we launched our alpha at the end of January 18. So I had kind of bootstrapped the MVP of the software. Like I've been part of a lot of companies where it's like, hey, we want to solve a problem. And you raise a bunch of money and you wander in the woods for two years, you rip through the cash and then you're like, let's do another round. And you know, then you start building your real product. We don't have time for that. So we launched early on, started testing immediately, launched our beta last June, kind of ran that through the end of the year. We've had 0% organic churn. Uh, we force churned a couple of companies at the end of beta because they were just too little. It didn't make sense for them. Um, and so uh, we've just been building since then. So we've got a little, we've got about um, getting close to a thousand employees on the platform right now, uh, just starting to sell kind of for real. Uh, and kind of launching through that. So it's been pretty exciting, but we've had employees now on the platform for going on uh, about 18 months. So what do you think has been like the biggest learning that you had as, you know, now being founder and CEO of a company versus CFO, COO? Mm -hmm. So it is a transition, uh, and there's there's a lot of things that I think were easier for me because I had the financial background. So, and especially since I've done, I mean, I've been part of raising over two hundred million dollars over my other companies. So, fundraising, yeah, okay, pitch decks, good, you know, financials, building out the model. That part was pretty consistently the same. The biggest difference was my approach. So when you're CFO in an early stage company, board mandated, not necessarily like founders don't want you to touch anything. You're trying to negotiate with them to figure out how you help them scale the company without killing the culture that they want to keep in place. Like that's a delicate balance uh, as you get into these kind of road bumps within companies as things start changing over time. Uh, I'd have to negotiate pretty heavily. And so my style had to change coming in as CEO because if I did that, I'd bulldoze the heck out of my team. And that's not going to build the best company because I don't have to be quite as kind of forceful. I don't have to go to here to be able to get to here. Right. And so like being able to, to scale that back so that we can get everybody's voice heard around the table, because ultimately it, it's everyone that's on this team that is helping influence the software. I've got a lot of domain expertise, but there's a lot of different types of people in the world and everybody's going to interact and want something different, especially on the employee side. So it's really important to have those different perspectives 
in the company. I mean, we've got, our team is seven people right now. Uh, we're 57% people of color, 57% female. Uh, we look very different from your typical tech company. Uh, quite intentionally, like that helps us move faster. It helps influence what we're building and the way we ask questions and kind of force issues rather than building an Amy echo chamber where I'd probably be stuck in SMB land, you know, banging my head against a wall. Like these things are important when you're building scalable tech. So that's been, that's been a huge kind of learning curve for me. Well, it's, it's also important that when you talk about the diversity of your, of your employees that you've instilled that day one. And that breeds the yep. culture of that continuing yep. to, to happen. And, you know, yep. I've talked to lots of other founders that did the same day one, you know, we're focused on yep. diversity and inclusion, not kind of after the fact, like, oh yeah, right. we have our ratios are off or something. Right. Well, yeah. and that was one of the things that was awesome about Jana and was a fantastic kind of learning for me, like the management team there was incredibly diverse and you could see that kind of go through the entire company and culture. Uh, so we had a bunch of different ethnicities represented. Uh, we were, you know, getting close to parity for kind of genders. Uh, and that was really interesting. One of the biggest uh, learnings for me was actually the management team did an offsite where we did like a like a disc assessment. And even though around the table we had, I think three or four different countries represented, a couple of genders, like we, we had a lot of differences. When you do the mind mapping, we were all super analytical and in the same spot. And it was one of those, oh no, like, <laughs> okay. We need to diversify on a totally different spectrum here and start bringing in some folks that are more creative, that bring something else to the mix. So we had diversity in a lot of ways, but we needed to add some others. And so I think it's really important to think about diversity, not just about gender or ethnicity or race, but it's thinking about it um, from generationally, thinking about different generations. We have four generations represented uh, within Compt. We interact, like I interact very different with software than a 22 year old. Like I didn't grow up with the internet. I grew up with a word processor in college. Like that's insane. Like that is, that is not a thing anymore. Like totally different perspective. Uh, and so making sure that you have a bunch of different approaches and you have the creative types and the analytical types and creating space for people to have that kind of brain space is super, super important if you're going to build kind of an amazing product and amazing platform. Are there any um, like uh, uh, personality tests or, you know, just assessment like, uh, you know, the Myers-Briggs or, yeah. um, you know, all the different ones that are out there. Um, the predictive index, that's the one that, yeah, yeah like that, like I've, I've heard great things about that one. Like, do you leverage any of those at all? Or? Uh, the one we've used is Crystal. I think it's called Crystal Nose with a K. Uh, it's free. That's part of the reason, you know, early days. I have seen the predictive index stuff. I think it's really interesting as long as it doesn't prescribe a role for people. So I think it can be used in really powerful ways. I think it can also box people in if you don't have the training on how to leverage kind of predictive index. I think they've got some really cool stuff though. Um, what I liked about Crystal was that it's, it kind of maps out the way you communicate, maps out your style, and then you can pull everybody's data in together and say, hey, this is how you should communicate with this person over here. So I actually did this with my wife just for the heck of it and be like, hey, let's, let's do this for fun. And it was like, okay, if you were going to ask her for a raise, here's the sample email. Be like, hi, Theoni, I would love to chat with you about my raise. Here's what I've done in the past year. And it was like 15 page long email. The email to me was, 
hi, Amy, I want to talk about my raise at four, period. It was like, done. <laughs> That's exactly it. Like, get to the point, and I'm, I'm all in. Like, I don't take that as abrupt or curt. I'm like, fabulous. Like, <laughs> totally different. And so it helps you map, especially as you have people who process information differently, to realize they need to be communicated with in a different way that is really helpful and that's what that's what i really like about crystal in particular is it helps you see how someone else needs to be communicated with so that they can hear your message now uh fundraising you've raised you know greater than 200 million in capital right so there's uh you know many many times that you've been in that negotiating process you know first time founder is not as lucky right like they're like trying to figure it out and you know so what pitfalls do you think you've seen whether if it's you know working with entrepreneurs or just ob general observance of uh, you know some of the pitfalls that they uh, you know the mistakes they make along the way yeah I think I mean there's so much information out there what's amazing to me is how many first-time founders have absolutely stunning pitch decks uh, and like they're like everything is crazy design quality day one which is amazing to me uh, and they the formula of what you do when you go into the room a lot of times is is on point and so I see a lot of really awesome stuff because people are leveraging these online resources I think that the nuance comes from folks that aren't necessarily kind of financially minded or they're they're engineering focused but they don't have the business expertise or they're business focused and don't have the engineering expertise it's making sure that you have the right set of folks around the table to help guide you so making sure you build your advisory board early to help help you see your blind spots um, for me I needed to build the business model just to make sure I'm not ripping through my own cash you know because I have this thing that I think is amazing that is gonna go down a really bad path I needed to test out the pricing model is the market big enough like look at it as if I was investing because I am uh, and I don't think a lot of founders necessarily do that they think hey I've got this amazing idea I should go build it and but should you like maybe think about like you've got to think about where this is gonna go and you don't build for an exit you need to have a mind for okay if you're building a niche on niche on niche product like Where's this going to go? Um, and so you can burn a lot of time doing that uh, without kind of knowing what you're doing. Um, but as far as pitching and things like that, I mean, honestly, like I, I don't see that many bad pitches anymore. So it's kind of amazing, like how many awesome the online resources are and everybody has just kind of gotten up to speed or passed. Like, like I've been in the room a long time and I think there's a lot of people with a lot better pitch decks than me these days. Like it's amazing. Now, what about the valuation piece? So when you do start to negotiate, yeah. like that's something that, um, you know, th there's a lot of resources too. Yeah. Uh, how should entrepreneurs think about, you know, valuing their company and that end result of the valuation? Yeah. No, that is, that is actually the, the art versus the science of this stuff. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs. I had one that was, you know, raising first round of capital, was super proud of themselves. They raised $2 million on for their first round of capital. They didn't have angel money. And so $2 million out of the gate, like huge check, pre-product, you know, pitch deck basically. And they did it as if, I think it was a $15 million um, kind of post money valuation. And they were really excited about that. And I looked at them and was like, you're dead. Like your company is literally dead. Right, you you price yourself too high. 
you're totally priced too high. You didn't get diluted, but you don't have enough money to actually get to a point where your company's valued at $15 million. You're not going to be able to get enough customers. You didn't give yourself enough money to get the time to get there. So by trying to be cute and do that, you've killed your company before you've even started. And so to me, it's stay as vanilla as possible, as long as possible. Um, because that allows you to, to stay within a framework that one VCs recognize you're not having to do down rounds and do all this cute stuff. Um, it's just keeping as simple and straightforward. I mean, your, your angel round you're doing somewhere, you know, whether you're doing a note or a safe, you're doing it somewhere in a two to $5 million kind of valuation cap. You know, when you're doing your seed, you're doing that somewhere in a four to an $8 million kind of range, you know, and it just kind of goes up from there, like keeping it vanilla, especially in the early days. Later on, there's a lot more variation and it's based a lot more on metrics and numbers and, you know, rounds of EBITDA and all that stuff. Early on, staying as vanilla as possible is, is one of the things that I think is key because it, it keeps you from having these layers of kind of crazy investor terms as well. Because as soon as they see anything tricky, they're going to layer their own tricky on top. And so if you just keep it straightforward, everybody ends up having uh, a better exit at the end of the day. Yeah. All right. So be smart and conservative. You don't always have to go for the long dollar and feel proud yeah. that you got that upper, upper valuation. Now, um, now let's go, you know, down the path. There's a company that's, you know, thriving and doing well, and you've been part of, you know, negotiating, you know, the exit. So what, so how about that part of, you know, actually going through the negotiation process of actually selling a company? Like I know that every situation has its own unique set of circumstances, but what general yeah. advice would you give there? I mean, yeah, and they do. I mean, it's, it's, you know, how, how much money does the company have before they die? Like, is it dire that you've got to exit? Is it, you know, you've got tons of capital sitting around and it's going to help you accelerate your growth? Like, there's a lot of different, every one of my companies has been, that's exited has been an entirely different scenario. Um, so it's, I mean, and they're all different industries. So, you know, multiples end up being different. I mean, you're looking at somewhere between a seven and a 10 X multiple, uh, usually on revenue. If you're a software company, uh, if you're somewhere on like the tech enabled services, it's probably going to be a three to five X multiple. Like there's still normal ranges. Uh, and then it, but it's figuring out, all right, if your last money in got you to a post money of $250 million, then, and your investors are expecting a 3x return, how big of a company do you have to be to be able to justify that kind of a return? So there's a lot of companies that raise a ton of money and the only way they can exit is if they are a billion dollars plus where all the founders would have made more money if they raised only 5 million and exited at 100. So it's running that math and being like, all right, risk reward, you can swing for the fences if that's your glory metric and that's what you wanna do. But if you're optimizing for cash, you, you might want to be a little more pragmatic and not just be like, woohoo, we raised $500 million. Like, fabulous. You have to be a billion dollars or no one makes a nickel. So that's a tough one. So all these companies that are getting anointed as unicorns based on their valuation, do you think we're in kind of this, this bubble of, I mean, because there's just like, you know, every day there's another company that raises yep. that billion dollar valuation, which means yep. their exit needs to be greater than a billion. And yep. so do you think there'll eventually be a bunch of these companies that just fall back to earth that are in that upper echelon of that unicorn yeah. status? I mean, so there's the, have you turned the term narwhal, like the underwater yeah, unicorn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that term. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, there's some that I think are going to do well. I think they'll IPO. Like you look at a company like Easy Cater, and it's a phenomenal company with an amazing management team, uh, and it's going to do incredibly well. They're solving a need in the market. They're building a very real business and a very real business model. It's not the you know, there's some, I'm not going to name names of the ones that I don't think are doing as well, but there's some that are losing close to a billion dollars a quarter. The finance person to me is like, well, all right, like, how, how's that work? I don't understand how you can lose a billion dollars a quarter and be a thing. Um, people are making money off of it, though. So, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Like, it's, it's above my pay grade, clearly. Um, but that's where I think that stuff, like, the, the interesting piece is that, there's um, the piece of the tax code where if you raise a whole bunch of money on a really big valuation, the investors, it can be a win for them if the company tanks and just dies rather than exiting at a low number because they get to actually take that loss on the last post money, not on where it died. And so say, for instance, you raise, um, you know, say you raise $100 million dollars your post money is say $500 million. would be an amazing valuation, by the way. Uh, if you die in that post money and they only put in 5 million, they get to write it off at that, that much higher valuation rather than you selling for 20 million, they write it down much lower. So there's this weird construct within the VC community where having a massive failure is actually phenomenal for your fund as well. If you need to take, if you need write-offs because you've had something else that's done well, it's tax planning. That is really interesting. I never, ever. I just learned that, by the way. So I can't, I can't take credit for knowing that forever, but I was like, oh. And suddenly companies that I know that have tanked, I was like, now I get it. Like that was tax planning on the VC's part. So it's something that I, I didn't realize. And it's like, okay, interesting. It's, it's counterintuitive to kind of the way you'd expect the market to work, but it's part of the business model. If you have, I mean, it's, it's a tax planning strategy within a fund for, for some folks. So balance, right? Fascinating. <laughs> a lot of for, like first time founders are not going to necessarily know that. Right. And so you may think you're getting this amazing valuation and you're getting this money. in when at the end of the day, you can swing for the fences, it can die and the, the investors still do well and you get nothing. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta make sure you're building your own business. Now, how about building out, um, whether if it's a board of directors or maybe an advisory board at first, like, wait, like, how do you think about that? Like, what types of people would you think about to, to join your, your advisory board or how should entrepreneurs think about that? I, I, so I built out an advisory board very early on. Uh, one of the first people on my advisory board was Margaret McKenna, who is from Runkeeper. Uh, she's amazing, technical. I, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a technical founder. And so I needed her help to help vet who would be joining us on the technical side because that's not expertise I have. So that's where I needed kind of advisory network to help me do that. Uh, another one of our advisors was a former chief people officer at Atlassian and success factors and Expedia, like knows the market, like amazing chief people officer, like gets the space uh, and could really help on the enterprise side of things. So it's thinking about folks who have expertise in areas I don't. Uh, same thing when we're building at the board. So we're doing that kind of construct now as we think about our seed realm. It's people, I, I don't need a yes board. Like that is not a healthy board. Uh, the board that's either gonna be too hands-on or too hands-off, that 
can kill a company. And so it's finding that right balance of who has skills I don't have, who can help guide us, who can help us see our blind spots, and who's going to help us build the best business. That is the magic of an amazing board. And that is ultimately like who's on your board can determine if your company lives or dies. It doesn't matter how amazing your product is. Mediocre products can do really well if you've got an amazing board. Amazing products can die if you've got a terrible board. And so it's finding those right people to help augment you and balance you out, I think is absolutely critical. I started thinking about that before I even started thinking about building the company of like how I would structure that because I've seen I've seen it go both ways. Like I've had good boards, I've had bad boards and the difference is dramatic. And that's another just great piece of advice that most entrepreneurs aren't thinking about how critical, you know, your advisory or, or board of directors could mean to yep. the company. Well, and it's, I mean, one, obviously trying to align yourself with VCs if you're going to be venture backed that you trust and you can have honest conversations with is really important. Not every founder has the ability to choose that though. Like if you look at like there are entire groups of founders that are not going to get a lot of funding and so they're taking the money that they can get that's when it's really important to have that independent board member. So having somebody that you have selected, not having an independent board member that your, you know, your VC handed you, because that's another vote for them and they have to run their own business model. So you need somebody to kind of counteract and be part of the board that can help balance that out. Um, so making sure that independent board members come on as soon as there's an investor, you should have an independent in my opinion. Yeah. Now at what point should a company hire a CFO? It's, it's one of those things that's kind of in flux right now. Um, so I'm seeing them come in early and earlier. I mean, for one thing, there's a shortage. I get job offers about every other week to be CFO. I'm like, okay, that's great. Appreciate it. It's good to know I have a backup plan. Yeah, but I'm good. Uh, there's not enough folks out there. I mean, I see a lot of job, uh, like job descriptions that are like, well, we want, you know, a CFO that's got, you know, 15 years experience has done at least two exits has raised a bunch of money and has maybe IPO would somebody. I'm like, that's adorable. There's three in town. So, <laughs> oh, and you only want to pay 175,000. That's not a thing. That's adorable. Like that's just not a thing. So I think folks are starting to realize like, look, there's, there's multiple ways to staff for this. Um, I think having somebody who's focused on the financials, if it's somebody who's an operator mindset, like having the accountant and you can staff that with junior folks, uh, having somebody who thinks about the strategy of the business, it's one of the few functions that sits across the entire company. So it has to know what's going on in all these other functions uh, and pull that together. I think early on, um, and early meaning, you know, when you get to, you know, a couple million in revenue and, you know, a hundred or so employees is not a bad thing. Um, earlier than that, it's probably overkill. You can do the fractional CFO thing and they can help. Um, but having that person, if you have somebody who is more of an operator can be really advantageous because the earlier you start setting up for kind of being clean internally, the less bumps you're going to have down the road uh, versus, you know, a lot of companies I would go into it's post series B, they've been doing all kinds of crazy stuff for years. And you look at their financials and you're like, your revenue is a quarter of what you think it is because you have no idea what revenue recognition is. We had to clean all of this up. And they're just like, what do you mean? I'm like, gap, like gap is a thing. And I hate to break it to you. We got to clean all this up. So it's, the earlier you start getting that stuff lined up, 
the better, the easier diligence is for funding rounds, the easier it is for an acquisition. Like it's the same whether you're structuring for an IPO or an acquisition, it's probably a public company buying you. Structuring early on is really important. Actually, I want to plug Shoebox for that, actually. I think they're a really cool company for, for, employee, for companies that don't have that CFO, don't know how to structure things. I think their software is actually really, really slick, really cool, where it helps you actually get that organization. I think that's actually really helpful, especially for those founders who aren't CFOs. I think that can help provide like the framework and the guidance on that. And I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Jason Furtado has done a great job, but I mean, it was Steve Papa, who, you know, right. legendary entrepreneur in Boston right. is like, this is so frustrating. Why doesn't this exist? And taking right. that pain to build this great yeah. product that Jason's uh, done a exactly. great job executing on, yeah, uh, which is similar to like, you know, how you started comp. It was like, how does this not exist? And this needs right. to exist. There's such a demand in the market for it. So exactly. Truly fascinating. And I, I love how you're like, yeah, I get, you know, ping for CFO jobs all the time. It's just like, literally like I've had customers, yeah. like their recruiters have reached out and they're like, Hey, I'm like, I know you'd be an amazing CFO here. Like we had a prospective customer. I was like, you're 10 people. I know I'd be an amazing CFO there too, but I'm busy right now. Thanks. Like, yeah, I you could, the you compliment. could doing it like rinse and repeat. Like you've done already, but I've done that. Like I've done that thing. I've done the rinse and repeat. Like I, I, I can do that as consulting. Like after this, if I feel like it, like I'm super excited to be building something from scratch right now. It's, yeah, it's no, we need comp to be a, a massive company in Boston. That's what I'm rooting for. Exactly. So uh, oh, you're, thank you. well, you're busy building a company, but uh, when you do have some free time, what else do you like to do outside of work? Uh, I do a lot of hiking and actually a lot of kind of international travel. Those are the two things uh, that we spend. So my wife and I don't have kids, not having kids, uh, which means we have a little bit more flexibility uh, and a lot more sleep than people who are going down the parent route. Uh, so like last year, we went and did a hiking trip through Mongolia uh, and just kind of like take off off the grid for a bit, you know, just kind of disengage it allows for me to clear my head, think a lot more creatively. Uh, and so, amazing. Like, that must have been an amazing trip. Amazing. Like the entire country is about a third of the size of the U.S., but only has 3 million people. Like just open, like nothing there. Just absolutely awesome. So it was awesome. Like some folks with a camel carrying our stuff and just like hiking for 10 days. It was awesome. Wow. That is awesome. So... Well, there's a thousand other questions that I could uh, ask you, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, Amy, thanks so much for taking the time to walk through your background, all the great things you've accomplished professionally, and of course, what you're up to with Compt and uh, all the great advice for, for founders. Awesome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.